Well, good morning, Gateway family. It is great to see you this morning. I want you to find Psalm number 133, Psalm 133 this morning. Much of what we've seen in the Psalms has been vertical, how we relate to God, how we seek his forgiveness, how we gain his wisdom, how we talk to him when life is hard, how we praise him. Then much of what we've seen in Psalms have been vertical. The Psalms do not overlook the horizontal dimension of life, the horizontal relationships with one another. And friends, both are essential as we think about pursuing God. Because how we understand God impacts how we treat one another. And how we treat one another impacts how we worship God, as we'll see this morning. So don't miss that. How we understand God is going to shape, is going to impact how we relate to one another. But how we relate to one another does impact how we worship God. And God requires his worshipers to act in a certain way, to treat each other in a certain way. But with that in view, I want to ask you this morning, have you ever experienced conflict with other Christians? Have you ever experienced conflict with other Christians? I see one person shaking their head, no, I know you're kidding over there. Yes, we all have, because we are sinners saved by grace, and we all have a sin nature, and that sin nature rears its ugly head at us and fights against us, and we easily fall back into selfishness, and we find ourselves in places of anger and division and conflict. So perhaps a better question is not, have you ever experienced conflict with other Christians, but what have you done when you've experienced conflict with other Christians? Because in how we treat one another does impact how we worship God. Now, there's two temptations when we have conflict with other Christians, two dangers that we can go to that are equally dangerous. Once we've had conflict with other Christians, one danger that we fall into sometimes is we cling to it. We hang on to it. We dwell on it. We keep thinking about it. We keep replaying that conflict in our mind day after day after day. And it turns into bitterness. It turns into unforgiveness. It turns into resentment. And it gets expressed with yelling. It gets expressed with violence. It may even get expressed with a cold shoulder. That's something that I call peace-breaking. The unity of Christ has been broken because there's been conflict. Instead of handling it biblically, we continue to dwell on it, and we are peace-breakers. There's another danger we can fall into as well that's very prominent in the church, and that's when there's been conflict, we just don't deal with it. We pretend it never happened. We just act like it was not a big deal. We may even say the words, oh, it's okay, oh, forget it ever happened, don't worry about it, and we never handle biblical reconciliation. We never handle forgiveness, so there's no unity. If the other danger was peace-breaking, this is what I call peace-faking, that we pretend to have harmony and unity with another, but we really don't because we've never been Reconcile. And the reality for many believers is our lives are characterized by either peace-breaking or by peace-faking. And both are dangerous because both are tools the enemy uses to wreck marriages, to wreck relationships between parents and kids, and to wreck churches. He does a really good job of that all over the world. Wrecking relationships between believers is a peace-break or peace-fake. And yet the irony is peace-breakers and peace-fakers then stand side-by-side on the Lord's day and try to worship God when there's such brokenness between their relationships. And that's not what the Lord wants it to be. And so Psalm 133 is a grace gift from God to us to show us what God requires of us as worshipers. To show us that that type of peace-breaking and peace-faking is not what God wants for us. That he requires something different of us, his children, who stand together to worship him. So we come to Psalm 133 this morning. I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. I want us to be looking for what does God require of his worshipers. This is three short verses, but I believe it's very impactful in our lives. What does God require of us, his worshipers? Psalm number 133. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard. On the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. 
And there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life, forevermore. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful that your word is powerful. Lord, though my voice is weak this morning, your word is still strong and powerful. And Lord, we are so thankful that your Holy Spirit applying your word is not contingent upon the strength of voice of the pastor. Lord, we are so grateful for your word. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would use your word to convict, to challenge, to grow, to encourage us this morning. Because, Lord, we know there's a very real enemy who wants to wreck every family in this church. An enemy who wants to wreck this church and to create disunity here. wants to create disunity between people in the city and all over the world. And, Lord, we know there's an enemy who works very hard to divide your people. Because he doesn't want you to be worshipped like you should. So, Lord, I pray this morning you would grow us and change us and transform us through your word. And, Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What I want you to see from Psalm 133 this morning is simply this. We desperately need God to give us a delight in pursuing unity. We have a desperate need, friends, and that's for God to work in our hearts, for the Holy Spirit within us to give us a delight, a desire in pursuing unity with one another. Friends, if we want to worship God as he deserves, and we want to have that vertical relationship with God right, it requires us to have the horizontal relationships right. We can't feign to worship God when we are dealing with disunity among one another. And God has to do this work in our heart. We need him so desperately to give us a delight, a joy in pursuing unity with one another. Well, once you see this in Psalm 133 this morning, so let's look at the context of what's going on here. Go back to the very first verse, and actually let's go to the subtitle before verse 1 what I call verse zero. This says, a song of ascents of David. So what are we dealing with here? This is a type of psalm known as a psalm of ascents. Ascent comes from the word ascend, meaning to go up. Psalms of ascents were songs that were sung by the Jewish people as they ascended up to Jerusalem, up to the temple for some of the big festivals of the year. These were songs to get their hearts ready for worship with one another as they worship God together. These were songs that were given to give them reflection as they prepare for these big three festivals that they had every year year. And so this one particular psalm would give them much to reflect on. It was very relevant for them. Can you imagine people from all over Israel traveling to Jerusalem for one of these big festivals as they were all converging together? You had traveling on the road together, rich and poor, people of renown and people who were unknown, people from different regions, people from different tribes and cultures. They were all converging, all traveling together, all coming to Jerusalem. And when they got to Jerusalem, it'd be packed tight with people from so many different backgrounds and ways of doing things all crammed together in Jerusalem, getting ready to worship the Lord. This psalm would give them something to reflect on about how they're to, to treat one another, how they're to relate to one another as they prepare to worship the Lord. And God used King David here, the great king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, to pen these words, to give them this to reflect on, to give us things to reflect on as we prepare to worship the Lord day by day. What you have here in this Psalm 13 is not a command. There's no commands in this text. Rather, what is before us is a vision of what true worshipers look like. It's a picture being painted for us of what our lives should be characterized by if we want to worship God. Notice the very first word of verse 1. Behold. Some translations may say to look, to take notice of. And this is emphatic in the Hebrew. This means David is shouting. He's saying, stop, look, take notice of this. Don't miss this. God is showing us a vision of what our lives as worshipers are to look like. Don't miss what he's showing you. And what's the vision that God has given us for what our lives are to be like? Well, verse 1 shows us. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. God's vision for his people, for his children, God's vision for his worshipers is they are to be unified, not divided. God's plan for us, if we're singing our songs to him, is that we are to be unified with one another. Notice here it says how good and pleasant it's when brothers dwell in unity. Well, remember here, brothers is 
designed to include everyone. Women, you're not off the hook on this one. This is for men and women both. All of God's children are included in this scope of this. And this is not just for an hour a week. Notice the word dwell here. The, the Hebrew word for dwell here means a long duration of time. It's not how do I get along with people for an hour a week so I don't have to see them again the rest of the week. What's in view here is how do God's people relate day by day by day by day, unified, not divided. God's plan for his worshipers is that of consistent day-by-day unity in all of our interactions. Now, that raises the big question, what is unity here? Well, in the Hebrew, the, the word here is yakad, which means unitedness, altogether being alike. And so you kind of take that, what is unity? There's kind of a negative part of it and a positive part of it. To be unified means simply on the negative side, you're not divided. You're not split. You're not marked by conflict. So there's the absence of something if you're unified. But more positively, to be unified means you're joined together with things in common. So if you're unified, you're joined together day by day with commonality, with things in common. That's his plan for us. Now, what things are included in this type of unity? Well, David doesn't tell us, but the rest of Scripture does. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 44, I want you to see it on the screen. Luke gives us a glimpse of the early church and the unity, the commonality, the like-mindedness they had. So that all who believed were together and had all things in what? They had all things in common. Now, what are those things that they had in common? I believe there was five things that the early church had in common that should characterize the lives of all of God's followers all of the time. So five things that it means to be unified, to have in common. Number one is a common theology. A common theology. Theology is theos, God, ology, study, the study of God. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. If we go back just a few verses in that. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There was a commonality they had in studying the word of God together to seek to know God. Believers are unified in wanting to know who God is as he's revealed himself to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. Now, this doesn't mean we have to agree on every nuance. As our little tiny, finite brains try to understand how infinite God works, there's going to be things that we may struggle with to agree on. If we have to agree on everything, you'll be a church of one, because we'll never find someone who agrees on every little jot and tittle and everything the exact way we do. This is talking about big picture of a common theology of we are pursuing the Word of God together, pursuing to know God for who He's revealed Himself to be. There's a common theology that we're united in. Second of all, though, there's common relationships. There's common relations. Notice the same verse here in verse 42 in Acts. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the, what's the next word? Fellowship. fellowship. This is the Greek word koinonia. This is a deep fellowship. They spent time together. They had community. They knew each other. They knew each other's needs and hopes and dreams and fears. They shared life together. And so to be unified as God's worship is not just we study God's word together, but we're unified. We have common Relationships. There was a clear church community that they knew who was part of the church and they shared life together. Friends, that's why we encourage you so strongly to do more than just the hour here on Sunday mornings. Why we plead with you to get into a life group or a small group in some way where you can go deeper in relations because God's will for us is not just show up an hour a week and tolerate each other. His will for us is to be common in our pursuit of Him and His Word, common in our relationships. Number three, though, there's a common pursuit of God. So the common theology a common relationship, and a third, a common pursuit of God. Also here in verse 42 in Acts 2. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. That's a description of the Lord's Supper and to prayer. So the early church was marked by unity. They had all things in common. That include pursuing God together. That meant they prayed together. That meant they took the Lord's Supper together. They were disciplined in seeking God collectively together. 
So to be unified, to have all things in common is common theology, common relationships, common pursuit of God. Number four, common generosity. A common generosity. Acts chapter 2, verse 45, just a few verses later in Acts 2. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They had a common generosity that they were giving together to make sure the needs of the body was taken care of, to make sure the needs of the church was being taken care of. They had a common pooling of resources for the good of God's kingdom. And number five, they had a common praise of God. We might call it worship, but we know worship is our whole life, but a common praise of God. Look at verses 46 and 47 of Acts 2. And day by day, and notice this is not just Sunday mornings, day by day, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Then verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. The early church was marked by day by day, spending time together in community, worshiping God with their songs and with their words. So friends, if we want to be unified as God's worshipers, he wants us to be, have a common theology, a common relationship with one another, a common pursuit of him, a common generosity, and common praise. Because this is not optional. This is so important. This is what Jesus prays for us. Remember John 17, when we were studying that two years ago? In John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, I want you to see that on the screen also. This is Jesus, what Jesus prays for us. This is incredible. He says, I do not ask for these only, those early disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, verse 21, here's his prayer for us. That they all may be what? They all may be what? Yes, he, Jesus is praying that we would be one, we'd be unified, we have all those things in common. You know, just as you, Father, and me, and I, and you, that they may also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. It's such the will of God that Jesus prays it directly for us. And it's the will of God we see. Go back to Psalm 133, verse 1. This is God's will for his people. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Don't skip that word good there. This word good is the Hebrew word tab that means intrinsically Right. What ought to be, because it's God's will. So this is what it's saying. Behold, how it ought to be, how intrinsically right it is, how God's will it is when brothers dwell together in unity. God's worshipers must be unified. It's not an option for us. That we must day by day be seeking those things in common together. It's our duty to be pursuing that. It's our duty to make sure that we're pursuing unity with one another because it's God's will. It's intrinsically right. Now, lest we think that's a burden, lest we think that's something that we just have to grin and bear it and get that white-knuckle determination and figure out, how am I going to love these people? I'm just going to do it. There's something else here that we must not miss. We need a delight in pursuing it. Look back at verse 1. There's one other important word here. Behold, how good and... What's the next word? Pleasant here. This is a Hebrew word that means delightful, sweet, lovely, agreeable. It's a word that we use to describe chocolate in our culture, Okay. Take something sweet, you put it in your mouth, and you go, this is pleasant, this is delightful. That's the same concept here. Pursuing unity is to be not just good and right, it's to be pleasant, delightful, sweet, lovely, agreeable to us. Yes, we need to pursue it, but we need to delight in pursuing it. And that's what these images in verses 2 and 3 are conveying for us, a delight in unity, a delight in pursuing it. And there are these two interesting images that David uses to show us what unity should be like and how good and delightful it is. Look at the first one in verse 2 here. It, it meaning the unity that believers have together, that worshipers have. It, this unity, is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. Unity is like oil running all over your clothes. Yuck, right? That's our culture's reaction to that. Like, 
what type of image is this? Like, why couldn't David say unity is like a potluck? I'm like, I can get my mind around that. Unity is like the dessert table at the Thanksgiving dinner next week. Like, we can get our mind around those. What in the world is David talking about here? Why is unity like oil running down on the clothes? Well, he's using an image that would be very real to them that seems far removed to us. To go back to the book of Leviticus, and when the high priest was set apart for service to the Lord in the most holy and sacred of moments, they put oil on his head to set him apart for the work of being the high priest. And they didn't just put a little bit of oil. They poured lavish amounts of oil, so much so it ran off his head, down over his beard, and down onto his clothes. And that wasn't saying they were all going, eh, when they saw it. They were thinking this is a holy moment when they saw it. It was smelled good. So take that together. What's David saying? He's saying unity is like this sacred oil flowing. This is, unity is sacred. It's from God. Unity is a holy moment. This desirable, when they would pour the oil on the high priest, the whole room would smell of the fragrance. If you look in the Old Testament at how it describes the, how the oil was made, it would have been delightful to the smell. It would have been like the most fragrant scent you can imagine. Just multiply many times as the whole room would fill with the smell of that oil. David's saying unity is like that. It's sacred and it's delightful. It smells good because it's from God. There's a second image he uses, again, that seems strange to us. Again, he doesn't talk about a potluck here. He talks about verse 3. It, unity, is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Why is unity like dew falling on a mountain? Well, geography moment here for us to understand this image here. Mount Hermon was in the northern part of Israel. It's about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. It's the highest mountain in the region. Mount Hermon was 9,000 feet above sea level, and it had lots of precipitation. If you look up, you just go Google Mount Hermon today, you'll find ski resorts on Mount Hermon in Israel today because there's so much snow up there. If you look at pictures of Mount Hermon during the, the summer months, it's green with vegetation. It's a place that gets snow all winter long, that gets rain all spring and summer, and it has dew all the time falling on the ground. It's a place of much moisture and precipitation. And so it's always green. It's always got plenty of water on it. Go south to Jerusalem. It's a very dry, arid place during the summer months. During two of the three big festivals where travelers would be singing this song, they were traveling during the summer dry months where there's no water around. But 150 miles north, the dew is still falling on Mount Hermon. That was dry where these worshipers are. And the dew, as it would fall down and the rivers would flow out of Hermon, would water the whole land of Israel from this. The dew of Hermon for them was a thing of delight because it was a source of moisture. Just like you look in California, there's areas with no rain, but there's plenty of water because the snowpacks in the Sierra Nevada mountains melt and the water runs down and waters the land. Same thing here. Mount Hermon was a source of life for Jerusalem because the water would come down from it. It was good and pleasant to them. So what David is saying, that unity of believers is life-giving. Just like the water that flows off Mount Hermon was life-giving, so is the water of the unity of believers. It is life-giving. So you put those two images together... It's unity is like oil on the head. It like unity is like the dew of Hermon. These are great. Unity is a grace gift from God that God gives. It is pleasant it's to, to be desired because it gives life. It's sacred. It's holy. And we should long for it. It's sweeter than the sweetest thing on earth we can experience. And friends, there's a reality check to us in this. Only God can make this unity. We can't manufacture it. We can't white-knuckle determination enough to get this type of unity on our own. And this psalm has that in there, but it's kind of buried in the imagery of that. And the poetic part of this is the reminder that only God can give such unity. Go back to verse 2, to the image of the oil flowing down on the head. It is like the precious oil on the head running which way? Is it running up or running down? 
is running down onto him. Verse 3, same thing. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls down on the mountains here. So what is this showing us? These are blessings that fall from above. The oil starts high, flows down. The dew starts high and falls. It's a poetic image to remind us that the unity that's parallel to this is also something that comes from above. It falls from above. It's a grace gift of God to us. He has to give it. So remember our study of Ephesians last year? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. I want you to see this quick reminder that we spent a Sunday looking at. In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are being built together. We can't build ourselves together, friends. God has to do the building. He does it by the who? Who does it? Last word there. Who's, who builds us? Last word? The Spirit. Yeah, the Holy Spirit builds us. We can't manufacture this time. You. you and I can't make unity ourselves. God has to do it, and the Holy Spirit's the one who works to bring us together. Well, that brings us to the question. If we're to delight in pursuing it, but God has to do it, what do we do? Do we have any responsibility? And we do have a responsibility to delight in pursuing unity. And I believe there's five ways we can delight in pursuing unity and pursue it while still recognizing it's God's work in us. I want to give you these five things about our role in making Psalm 133 a reality in our lives together as the people of Gateway. Number one, how do we pursue this unity? How do we delight in this unity? Number one, we remember the gospel. We must remember the gospel and start here. What you see on the screen, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. Just going back a little bit. Ephesians 2, 13. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both... What's the next word? He's made us what? One. One. He's made us one. There it is again. He's made us unified. And he, Christ, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15. I think we have it up there. There you go. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace... And then verse 16 there, Ephesians 2. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Friends, the gospel reminds us not just of who God is and what he's done for us, but it reminds us of what God has done for other believers as well. The gospel reminds us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that we're unified, that he, part of the gospel is making us one body, one people for God. There's not different classes of Christians. We're all one in Christ. And so the gospel reminds us of how we should treat one another because we're fellow image bearers of God. We're fellow recipients of grace. We remember the gospel if we want to pursue unity. So we remember the gospel. Number two, though, we don't just remember the gospel. We pray for unity. We pray for unity. If we go down a few verses to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, I want you to see where we were picking back up a little bit ago with that. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, again, God's doing the work, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Then verse 22 that we saw just a minute ago. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Friends, if God has to do the building, we have the responsibility to ask for it. We have to ask for and pray for unity. Friends, when was the last time we prayed for the unity of Gateway? When was the last time we prayed for the unity of our small group and the unity of our family and the unity of our friends? We need to be crying out to God for it. Think back a few weeks ago to Psalm 67 which is that prayer of blessing. May God be gracious and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. We saw in Psalm 67, it is good for us to ask for blessings from God when we're asking for them for the right reasons. 
This is a great thing for us to be praying for. Asking God to bless his church with unity. Asking God to bless small groups with unity. Asking God to bless us together with unity. That is a great prayer for us to be crying out for the blessing of God. So we want to pursue this unity. We want to delight in it. We remember the gospel. Number two, we pray for it. Number three, we pursue spirit-given holiness in our own lives. We pursue spirit-given holiness in our own lives. Because, friends, if we're honest, most of the breaks in unity come from us, don't they? From our own sin nature, from our own angry words, from our own impatience, and all the sin in our own heart that destroys unity as well. And so we pursue holiness that comes from the Holy Spirit being within us in our own lives. If we want unity of the body so we can worship God like he desires, we must pursue holiness. Also in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, let me remind you what we saw in that study of Ephesians. And no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as if it's the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now let that sink in. When we are dividing, when our words are tearing down, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And then verse 32, be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Because we must pursue a spirit-given holiness in our own lives. And if we do that, think of what would happen to church unity if we all lived out Ephesians 4 right there. If all of our corrupting talk went away from our mouth and we showed kindness and tender-heartedness and forgiveness to one another. So we pursue holiness in our own lives. So remember the gospel. We ask God for unity. We pursue holiness ourselves. But number four, because we are going to sin against other people, we seek reconciliation where there's been conflict. No matter how hard we try, friends, we are still going to sin. I'm still going to sin against you. You're still going to sin against me. We must be willing to seek reconciliation, to seek forgiveness with one another. Jesus spoke about this, and this is a really sobering text. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. In Matthew 5, 21, Jesus is talking to his disciples. says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell, to the hell of fire. Now, verse 23. So, because of this, because of what Jesus sees about the human heart and anger. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, let's paraphrase that phrase, if you were worshiping God, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Now, this is dealing with, they have something against you because you've sinned against them. You're the one who's offended them. You've sinned against them. So if you're worshiping God and you realize you've sinned against someone, what does Jesus say to do? Just keep worshiping and pretend it didn't happen. Be a peacemaker. It's okay. No? Just dwell in it. It's okay. No. He says, leave your gift there before the altar. Stop worshiping. Put it aside. First go be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your, offer your gift. If we want to worship God like he desires, we must be unified with one another. So if we have sinned against someone else... We're being hypocritical to come stand in here and sing of the greatness of God, knowing we've sinned against someone and not having gone to them to seek forgiveness from them. God is that serious about that. He says, quit pretending to worship me if you're not willing to seek forgiveness from those you have wronged. Is that serious to God? So if we want unity that is described in such a sweet way in Psalm 133, we remember the gospel, we pray for unity, we pursue holiness, we seek reconciliation, and number five, we intentionally seek to bless others. We intentionally seek to bless others. We don't just sit by waiting for people to do good to us. We seek to do good to the community of faith. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. I want you to see these two verses here. Finally, all of you, all us together, the body of Christ, to be unified, have unity of mind. There it is again. 
Unity is God's plan. We see all throughout the scripture. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Then verse 9, he goes on to say, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary. What do you do? Bless. For this is what you were called. He's telling us to bless. Friends, if we want unity in the church, we don't need to sit by passively hoping it's going to happen. We find ways today, this week, to bless those that we're in the community of faith with. And friends, it's by God's grace we do those things. It's by God's grace we remember the gospels. By God's grace we pray for unity and he answers. As we seek holiness, as we seek reconciliation, as we seek to bless others, God moves in amazing ways. He works in us and through us as we seek those things to heal wounds, to give reconciliation, and to bring diversity together to be one body to worship him. And he gives us a foretaste of what heaven will be like. Verse 3 alludes to that life forevermore when there is perfect unity. But in the meantime, he calls us to pursue it. He calls us back to verse 1. Behold, look, notice how good, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Friends, we desperately need God to give us a delight in pursuing unity. So I want to ask you, friends, do you think about your relationship with other Christians at Gateway and even in the broader community? Are you a peace breaker? Are you a peace faker? Or are you, by God's grace, a peacemaker? Are you a peacemaker who delights in unity with other believers, who desires it, who's crying out to God, asking him for it, and is pursuing it by his grace as you dwell on the gospel, as you seek to make wrongs right, as you seek to bless others? Are you desiring unity? We desperately need God to give that to us. And I pray by his grace he will more and more. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your word. Lord, we're so thankful that your word convicts us and challenges us and grows us and Lord, I just pray right now for the people of Gateway and for my own heart as well. Lord, that you would make us peacemakers. Lord, us who have experienced that glorious gospel of being reconciled to you, that you've given us peace with you, and you've caused us to be at peace with one another. But we know there's a very real enemy who wants to destroy the peace and unity because, Lord, ultimately the enemy hates you. When he hates us, he hates you and hates you being worshipped. And he wants to do all he can to keep you from being worshipped like you deserve. And Lord, if he can get us fighting with one another and gossiping and backbiting and slandering and angry and the cold shoulder, Lord, he's, he wins. So would you give me and these precious brothers and sisters much grace this week to be peacemakers? Or maybe there's places in our lives where we've been peacebreakers and we've been giving people cold shoulders or been hanging on to stuff in the past. Would you give us much grace this week, Lord, to go to that person and seek forgiveness and to seek wholeness and unity? Or there may be others where we've been peace fakers and we just... Try to not deal with conflict because it's painful and hard. But Lord, I pray you let us see that the gospel is bigger than that. And this week, Lord, you would lead us to a place of seeking to make wrongs right. And Lord, I'm just so thankful for the unity we have here at Gateway. Lord, it's such a sweet thing. Just like these images in Psalm 133 have shown us. Lord, it's so precious and so rare. But we don't want to take that for granted. So we want to thank you, first of all, for the unity we have as a church. Lord, we want to ask for more and more of it. And we know it's good to ask you to bless us and make your face to shine upon us so that your way may be known in all the earth. So Lord, for us, the people of Gateway, would you give us a sweet Holy Spirit, God-given unity, Lord? Not just for us and our pleasure, but so that we can worship you and so we can make you known. That the world around us might look and go, there's something different, there's something different about those people. I don't understand it. I want what they have. And Lord, I pray that this week, that our unity in you, that you give to us, might be something you would use to glorify yourself and make yourself known wherever we are. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you